Romans chapter 1. We'll pick things up in verse 16. Paul writes uh, to the church in Rome by the Spirit of God, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteous, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is shown in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. And therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful as we live in this world and we are literally, well, you know you live inside of us, bombarded with every imaginable message in the course of a week in this fallen world. It's a very informed society, Lord, and uh, not always well-informed or completely informed. And we're glad to be able to come to your word and to be able to learn the truth as you see it, and then, Lord, to build our lives, obedience by obedience, on a foundation that will never be shaken despite all that goes on around us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us your perspective on the things that we'll be looking at today. Pray for a work of your Holy Spirit that always needs to be coupled with your word in order for it to gain a living and eternal place in our hearts. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to talk about 
uh, marriage, homosexuality, and uh, Christian citizenship. On January 1st, uh, 1999, California enacted a domestic partnership registry. And uh, by the year 2007, domestic partnerships were uh, allowed virtually all the same rights and responsibilities as marriages. In the year uh, 2000, March 7th, 2000, rightly recognizing that domestic partnerships were merely an intermediary step to demanding full marriage equality for homosexuals, the 61% of California voters passed Proposition 22 to keep marriage between a man and a woman. On May 15, 2008, this year, uh, four judges on the state, California State Supreme Court overturned the will of the voters and on a narrow four to three vote struck down Proposition 22, making homosexual marriage valid and recognized in the state of California, joining at that time uh, only the state of Massachusetts in making marriage licenses available to homosexual couples and in the time between then and now, uh, uh, Connecticut has also uh, joined uh, to become the little trinity. Uh, prior to this, in the spring of this year, recognizing that the state Supreme Court uh, could rule in this way and overrule Proposition 22, uh, nearly 1.2 million signatures were collected all over California qualifying a proposition known as Proposition 8 for this November's ballot. And the proposition is simply stated in 14 words. It declares this, only marriage between a man and a woman is valid and recognized in California. And if that Proposition 8 passes in November, it will become a part of the state constitution, making it much harder uh, to be overruled. If you've been reading on this issue of marriage, if you've been reading the letters to the editor in the Medesto B in recent months, you've noticed that there are very, two very, very sharply divided camps uh, in, in, on this issue, on the issue that is at the core of all of this, and the issue, of course, is homosexual marriage. And for those that see no harm in allowing marriage to include homosexuals, I think that their response is uh, typified by a letter to the editor that was in the Bee just this last Sunday where a man wrote and said, marriages for gay couples will have no effect upon my marriage or anyone else's. I think that there are also uh, many, many people who think the same way, even many Christians uh, think the same way, and they think, what's the big deal about changing how we have traditionally viewed marriage as being only between a man and a woman to now include homosexuals, men marrying men and women marrying women. Why not just live and let live? And when I read that and when I hear that, and it's kind of the common, you know, clamor in the culture right now, on one hand, I really understand the confusion that's behind that kind of a statement. I understand how a person can look at it and say, what's the big deal here? Uh, why not just extend it to them, and why bother with the fight? I don't understand what the fight is, is all about. Why make such a big deal out of it? But this question that they have, this what's the big deal question, is born out of a very significant ignorance. 
And the ignorance is this. The institution of marriage is God's institution. It does not have its origin in man. Marriage had its origin in God. And thus it is not man's to change and it is not man's to reform or to redefine. The origin of the institution of marriage is recorded in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. I'll read it for you. And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took, that is, the Lord took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. She goes from being a woman to being a wife, and they shall become one flesh. The characteristics of this institution of marriage as it's uh, defined and instituted uh, by God is that it has its origin in God, not in man. It's between a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, so it is to be purely heterosexual. It was also monogamous. God gave Adam only one wife, and the Lord himself endorsed this definition of marriage by performing the very first marriage ceremony. Sometimes you'll read different places, you'll hear people mock this whole idea uh, as is recorded in Genesis chapter 2, and they'll say, well, if Adam and Eve were married, then who married them? All you have to do is pick up the Bible and read chapter 2, and you know who married them. God married them. It's important to realize that all of this in terms of how marriage is to be defined all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, all of this is exactly how Jesus viewed marriage. When the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, came to Jesus and they attempted to trap him on a question concerning marriage, Jesus took and uh, quoted these verses, same verses in Genesis chapter 2, affirming marriage to be a divine institution wherein a man and a woman become husband and wife. And Jesus declared there in Mark's gospel chapter 10, he said, For from the beginning of the creation... God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, and they, then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder or separate. When I uh, officiate at a, uh, a Christian wedding and, and I'm marrying two uh, Christians, typically I come out 
uh, five to ten minutes prior to the bride and groom coming out to exchange their vows. And, it, and, the, and the wedding ceremony begins with me coming out. And I come out prior to them to kind of explain to the people what they're about to witness before their very eyes. And they've been called as witnesses to view the exchange of vows. And so I want to fill in the big picture of what is, what is happening here and why we're, uh, why we're doing what we're doing here today. And I typically will pose several questions to them. And I'll ask them something like, why do we do this? Why do we have wedding ceremonies? Why do you keep getting invited to them? Why do people get married at all? Why has this been done in one form or another from the beginning of time? Why is this thing called marriage and the wedding ceremony performed all over the world and, and it has been throughout all of history? And I ask them, why do we do it? And, and uh, you know, whose idea was this? Where did it come from? And the answer, of course, is that it came from God. Marriage has its origin in God. And thus, we're, I'll tell them, we are gathered here today not only to unite uh, Joe Bacicalupi and Lillian McGillicuddy in holy matrimony, but we're united here today to, we've come here today to celebrate an institution of God uh, called marriage. And for many, many people, uh, they begin thinking, yeah, why do we get married? Yeah, why do they keep inviting me to this? Are just trying to get presents out of me or what? And, and they finish by realizing that they're not watching some kind of a man-made tradition or some kind of man-made superstition, but they're about to witness an institution of God. That's why people get married, because God instituted this. And a light goes on for them, because most people have no idea the origin of, of marriage. And so marriage is an institution of God, and it's one that he has defined very carefully and very wisely, and thus it is not ours to change or to redefine. Go call it something else, go, uh, you know, do something else, but don't redefine marriage for God. And I think that almost all people would agree that marriage, by God's definition, has served mankind very, very well for thousands and thousands of years. Well, the attempt to redefine marriage today is largely coming from one group of people, and that is homosexuals. And I think that it's very important for us to understand how the Lord views homosexuality in order to get some kind of a sense for how pleased he might be by their attempts to change his institution. The fact of the matter in the Bible is that the Lord condemns homosexuality from one end of the Bible to the other literally from Genesis to Revelation. And I think we need to be very, very clear on this. God condemns the sin of homosexuality. He condemns the person who practices homosexuality, but he does not condemn the person who is tempted by homosexuality, who has an inward pull inside of them toward homosexuality, and, and, uh, but they recognize that it's wrong, and thus they choose not to engage in it. Temptation to sin and then to sin, those are two entirely different things. 
in, in God's eyes. As descendants of Adam and Eve, every single one of us in this room fights a daily battle with some sin or some sins that we must resist in order to bring pleasure to God through our lives on a given day. Nobody is immune this in this fallen world, fallen people uh, that we are. And so that temptation toward homosexuality should never be viewed as a worse temptation than any other temptation to sin. And I think those who are heterosexual need to understand that and to greatly respect the person who is tempted by homosexuality but resists the temptation with the knowledge that this is wrong. And they should be respected in the same way we would respect anyone who resisted any sin in order to do right before God and in order to be right before God. I also think that practicing homosexuals who justify their sin by saying it's okay because I was born this way really need to rethink that particular position that, that they're holding on to. I personally have no doubt that there are men and women who are born into this world with a tendency toward homosexuality. There's an attractiveness about homosexuality that they have that other people do not have. And I know that a lot of people want to say that all homosexual tendencies are completely the result of environment or some kind of uh, sexual life experience, that it, that it isn't uh, hereditary, that it's all environment. And the reason that so often people want to argue that point and say no one is born a homosexual or with a homosexual tendency, it's something that they pick up through indoctrination, is that they are afraid that uh, they're going to discover a gay gene or some kind of a physiological reason for a homosexual tendency, and then the homosexual community will then use it to legitimize their sin and uh, say, well, I was born this way and thus make it impossible to condemn it. After all, I can't help it. I was born this way. And I get all of that. I get where people are saying, you know, don't give an inch on, on the issue. But the problem with using being born that way as an excuse to practice the sin of homosexuality is that it's not a legitimate excuse for sinful behavior in the eyes of God. And it should not be a legitimate excuse for sinful behavior in the eyes of society. And the reason is, is that every one of us has a born-that-way tendency towards some particular sin or another. You have people who are born pyromaniacs. They're fascinated with fire in a way that the vast majority of the population are not. You have people who are born into this world with a far greater tendency toward violence than the population as a whole. You have people who are born with a greater tendency toward addiction, toward alcohol addiction, toward drug addiction than other people have. You have people who are born into this world with a greater tendency 
toward anger, toward rebellion, toward jealousy, toward covetousness than other people have. And on and on the list goes. But being born with a certain tendency doesn't automatically make that tendency right. Otherwise, you have to open the prison doors and let out every single man and woman woman that is in a prison because of some sinful, natural tendency that they acted out on that landed them in that prison. If you're going to be fair and, and, and run this thing uh, all the way across the board, all of us are born with sinful, natural tendencies that we have to learn to control or to deny for the sake of others, for the sake of society, for the sake of the health of society as a whole, and in order most especially to be on the right side of God's definitions of, of right and wrong. And those with a tendency toward homosexuality are no different than everyone else. Verses that condemn homosexuality in the Bible, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. That's how God views it. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a man, uh, with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. It was the sin, Genesis chapter 19, it was the sin of homosexuality that provoked the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, as he wiped them out uh, for their wickedness and their wicked uh, influence. Now those of you who come, if you've been indoctrinated in any, in any way by an attempt to justify uh, homosexuality from a uh, Bible standpoint. It's impossible to do, but an attempts are, are made to do it. Uh, and if you were to raise and say, well, what about Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed because of uh, the sin of homosexuality and all? Very often, uh, they'll take you to Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, where Ezekiel declares, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter uh, had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy and were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. And so a uh, homosexual person might say, well, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the sin of idleness. It was the sin of not helping the poor uh, and, and the needy. And uh, so the, the, that's, that's the cause of it. What the Lord is saying here, and he makes it clear biblically in, in, a, in just a moment, what he's saying is, is that there is a tendency in cultures who no longer uh, live, uh, no longer have, like, they get bigger margins for comfort, for food. You're not living day to day. Uh, the, the culture becomes prosperous. There's now, uh, there's much more time for recreation, much more time, you know, for getting in trouble rather than working the fields and these kind of things. And there is a tendency when a culture reaches that kind of place to 
um, have a little bit too much time on their hands maybe and it gets misdirected and in the pride of look at what we've the society that we've produced look at how prosperous it is look at what we've been able to do that in that pride they start to redefine uh, right and wrong for God and then attempt to legitimize homosexuality it's almost as if God anticipates uh, the attempt to rewrite the history of Sodom and Gomorrah so he addresses it himself in Jude chapter 1 verse 7 for your note takers he said as Sodom and Gomorrah Jude did and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh this is the reason for their destruction are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire and so that was the reason for their destruction not because they weren't helping the poor all the way through the Old Testament homosexuality is referred to as a perversion and it clearly is a perversion of God's intent for the sexual relationship for example in 1st Kings chapter 14 verse 24 and there were also perverted persons in the land and they did according to the abomination of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel and so this perverted persons referred to uh, male prostitution specifically ritual prostitution that was being done in the worship of false gods in the in the land of uh, Israel but homosexuality is not just condemned in the Old Testament but also in the New Testament first Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor uh, sodomites, talking about practicing, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul wrote to that church at Corinth, and such were some of you. I mean, the, God, the people that made up the church of, you know, Calvary Chapel or First Baptist of, of, uh, of Corinth, they come out of all those sins. He said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murders of fathers, murders of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, here it is, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God who is, which was committed to my trust. It's also condemned in Romans chapter 1, as we uh, read in our scripture reading. Very often you'll hear someone say, well, Jesus never condemned uh, homosexuality. So forget about what everybody else says. We just care about Jesus and care about what he has to say. But the fact of the matter is he did condemn uh, homosexuality. First of all, at the time of Jesus, in the light of the weightiness of the, and unmistakable clarity of the teaching of the Old Testament, uh, it would have been inconceivable that any Jewish rabbi would have ever had to stand up and condemn homosexuality as a sin. That was given a given among the Jews. Nobody even uh, doubted that. And so it didn't need to be said because everyone recognized it as being true. 
It's only in our moder- that our modern morals have dropped so low that some homosexuals could even have the boldness to try and paint Jesus as this kind of silent advocate for the homosexual uh, lifestyle. Jesus did condemn the moral condition of Sodom at the time of its destruction, its casual attitude towards sin all the way until it was destroyed. Luke chapter 17, verse 28, Jesus speaking, Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Again, when the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus on the subject of marriage, uh, as I read earlier, Jesus uh, went back to Genesis chapter 2, stating God's definitive uh, 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 definition of, of marriage there, a statement, again, that makes no room for homosexual marriage. As he said, from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female for this reason, a father, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, two shall become one flesh, and so then they are no longer called two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man uh, separate. So God can't be clearer than he is uh, on this subject in his word. Now, I know that homosexuals often feel that they're especially picked on uh, by Christians, that we make more of their sin than we make of, of other sins. And so uh, they, they feel that they're, they're being persecuted in that way. And there's a sense in which that is both true and, and untrue. There is a sense in which homosexuality is like any other sin, that it's just one in a long list of sins that are wrong in the sight of God and they are not to be practiced. But where things get sticky with homosexuality is when a homosexual comes to a personal conclusion that homosexuality is not wrong but a perfectly acceptable way to live and then demands that society views it as such also because for an individual or a society to come to the conclusion that homosexuality is a perfectly acceptable way to live requires a very dangerous thought progression, a thought progression that literally casts the future of that society into doubt. And the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, lays that progression out for us in the passage that we read in Romans chapter 1. And you notice there in verses 18 through 23, essentially Paul declares that in order to come to accept homosexuality as normal, a society must first reject the clear commands of God prohibiting it. And in order to do that, they must reject God as the moral authority of the universe as the moral authority over mankind, and they must do it even if that means denying God's very existence in the face of undeniable evidence for his existence. That's what Paul is saying there. The Bible teaches, and, and Paul brings it out in verse 20 there, 
The Bible declares that all of creation testifies to the existence of God. It testifies to the power of God. It testifies to the wisdom of God. And, and uh, you take, for instance, uh, the classic example of a wristwatch. You take a wristwatch and you look at that wristwatch, and when you look at that wristwatch, you realize there's a creator behind that wristwatch. There's a creator behind that creation. Wristwatches just don't happen. They get created. You also recognize concerning a wristwatch that there is also a designer behind the design. And so anywhere you look all around this world, anywhere you, anywhere you see, whether it's a bridge or a building or an automobile or uh, a factory, anywhere you see creation, there's a creator behind it. Anywhere you see design, there's design behind it. And what is always true about the designer and the creator is that they're always greater than the thing they've designed and that they've created. And what Paul is saying is what was true of all the things that we look at and we use and we drive and all the appliances and all the things that men can create, what is true about these things is equally true of all the creation that we look at. As we look at the existence of the heavens and the earth, we look at what we're able to see with the naked eye, we're able to see with a telescope, we're able to see with a microscope, and we see the creation, and it speaks of a creator. It didn't just happen. It's not just here. And you look at the interconnectedness of it. You look at the complexity of it. You look at how all of it depends on the precision of the entire machinery, the entire creation operating a certain way. And if one portion of it fails, then the whole thing collapses. And you realize that there is a great designer behind that. And you realize just as with the watch that the creator and the designer behind the creation, the design of all that we see every day is, is greater than his creation and his design. And Paul, in, in essence, said this is something that an adult can understand. It's something that a child can understand. God says it's patently obvious. Nobody should be able to miss this about what creation and design speaks to every single human being in this uh, world. And so you see the creation, you see the complexity of creation that's around us all day, and it communicates like a great flashing neon sign, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God. And from the perspective of heaven, it is a considerable thing to fail to recognize God behind all of his creation and his design that surrounds us. In fact, the Bible declares that in light of all of this evidence, only a fool would, would deny God's existence. And that's not my words, that's God's words. He said in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so this whole progression, this dangerous thought progression, begins with the rejection of the existence of God. Not for good reason. Let's reject God if there's good reasons for it. But this is not the rejection of God for good reason, but it's the rejection of God in an effort to be rid of his pesky, restrictive laws. Now notice in verse 26 and verse 27, secondly, in order to accept homosexuality as normal, a society, a society must also reject the witness of nature. Because at this point, 
even after having perhaps successfully rejected the existence of God, the homosexual still has a problem. And the problem that they have is that nature then raises its hand to complain that it's not on board, that the homosexual lifestyle is not natural. It's not natural. And anyone can look at that and see that it's true. I remember witnessing with someone on Romans chapter 1 and somebody, you know, the design, designer, creation, creator, and this whole thing with somebody. They said, oh, that's just a philosophical argument. They had no idea it was in the Bible. They thought it was just saying stuff. But God makes it just as simple so anybody could understand it. I mean, simple but deep as can be. But anyone can see that homosexuality is against nature. The plumbing doesn't match. In homosexual uh, marriage, and it, then, you know, that goes there, and this goes here, and that, and everybody can see it's been created to do that. And, and nature testifies that the sexual relationship is intended to be expressed between a man and a woman because the two bodies are perfectly compatible to, to one another. Anyone can understand it. But the homosexual, in homosexual sex, there's no accommodation uh, of nature for it. And it's nature's way of standing up and saying, no, 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 no. Homosexuality is not only contrary to God's law, but it's contrary to nature. It's unnatural. So in order for society to legitimize the practice of homosexuality, it has to do so in the face of, number one, the witness of God, and number two, in the face of the witness of nature. And if a society blows through those two stop signs, they cross through a very dangerous line. And it's one of the reasons that historically, when a society legitimizes homosexuality, it's the beginning of the end for that empire. It's the beginning of the end for that Nation, And that's why the battle against the advancement of homosexuality and the battle against legalized abortion needs to be fiercely waged in this culture with, with the weapons that God has given us to resist it with. And that is truth and love. And truth is on the side of God and His, His Word. Because once a nation... And here's, here's, the, here's what happens when you blow through those stop signs. Once a nation can justify the death of her children in the womb because you can't hear their screams, and once a nation can justify homosexuality as natural, there isn't anything that society can't convince themselves of. There isn't any evil they cannot come to rationalize and to accept and then to force on everyone else. There's nothing they can't justify in their minds. And that is very, very scary. And it is this disregard I think of even the witness of nature that makes homosexual sin 
different from heterosexual sin. And there is heterosexual sin, fornication, adultery, prostitution, etc. They're all, all very serious sins and to be resisted, but they are not sins against design. They are not sins against nature. Very often homosexuals will contend that they can hardly do any more damage to uh, marriage than heterosexuals have done with it, uh, with their 50% divorce rate. And I see, I see what they're saying. I get what they're saying. But what they're missing is, is that two wrongs don't make a right. The solution to a 50% divorce rate in society is to address the causes of a 50% divorce rate and then to correct them. The solution is not to further discredit the institution of marriage by ad- including homosexuality. You, you, you do not right a wrong by committing another wrong. You can't do it that way. And I'll tell you, as God is our witness, and as this community is our witness, I can stand before you and deliver this sermon knowing that on this issue of both heterosexual sin in addition to homosexual sin, we've been no respecter of persons. We have paid a great price through the years making a stand against unbiblical divorce between heterosexual couples and been through great pain to do it and been... uh, blasphemed and discredited for do it, doing it. So we've been on the, on the fair side, on God's side, no matter what the issue is on, on things, and, and have uh, spoken strongly against uh, sinful heterosexual divorce and addressed it strongly in private too. Now finally notice in verses 28 through 31, after a society decides that it's now going to define right and wrong on its own, and it's going to define right and wrong in violation of the witness of God and in violation of uh, nature. Now what you end up with is a moral free-for-all. Now what you end up with is a society that is going to inevitably unravel, and ultimately it does devolve into uh, moral chaos. Because the problem that such a society creates for itself is this. How can it choose to protect the sinful expression of homosexuality in open violation of God's law and in open violation of the witness of nature and then forbid the rest of society from doing whatever they want to do, practicing the sins that they want to practice, even if their sin violates the law of God and nature? And the answer is, you can't stop them. You can't deny them now. Not for very long. And as the Scriptures lay out here in in verses 28 through 31, there is a vast array of deviancy that will very quickly line up right behind homosexuality and follow it through the opening that they provide. In other words, you haven't ended your problems with legitimizing homosexuality. Let's just give them what they want and all our problems will go away. They won't go away. The problems are just beginning for a culture. 
in a society that takes that uh, step. I think that in all reality, the thinking homosexual should be very alarmed at society's acceptance of their homosexuality because of the dangerous precedents society is, is setting and accommodating them. Yes, you gain uh, your legal rights, but at what future cost? The unraveling of society and in a way that will one day frighten even you in terms of living in, in this culture. Notice what this section closes, uh, this section closes with a condemnation there in verse 32. And uh, the condemnation is not just against those who practice all of these sins that Paul has listed, but he also condemns all of those who approve of those who practice these sins. And the word approve, it means to give their hearty approval to. In other words, they step up, and even though they don't practice those sins, they say, we support their right to do that. And, and God steps in and he condemns the person as being virtually guilty uh, for, for doing so. I mean, it's just heavy. Verse 32 is unbelievably heavy verse because of how far-reaching it is. And that's what a no vote on Proposition 8 does for a Christian. It's a vote which supports the practice of sin, and God will take note of it. Some would say, well, you know, I wouldn't do that, but I support their right to that. That's what God is condemning in verse 32. The fact of the matter is, is that the Christian is to support in every way, uh, is, is to resist, rather, in every way the advancement of the sin of homosexuality in the culture. That's what we're called uh, to, to do. And so, uh, that, uh, it, whether in a city or whether in a state or whether in a nation, don't be bullied. Don't be bullied. Stand up and make your views known on this issue as you represent the Lord. Well, someone says, well, what about the Christian who has homosexual children and grandchildren and homosexual siblings and uh, homosexual friends? It's not an easy place to be. And I don't need to tell a whole bunch of you in this room that that's not an easy place to be. Because you want to maintain the relationship with that friend and with that, that loved one. And, and so, but you've got to maintain the relationship, or as you do endeavor to maintain the relationship, it has to be done with, at the same time without endorsing their sin. So we depend on the Holy Spirit to give us that kind of wisdom for the lines that are required in, in that relationship. But having close relationships with homosexual people, it must never cause us to compromise in our relationship with the Lord. Our relationship with God is the most important relationship that we have. And when we are forced to choose between being faithful to Him or being faithful to anyone else related to any other sin, we must choose to be faithful to Him. Paul wrote in this whole vein, writing to the Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he said, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of God. 
He wrote to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 4. Certainly not. Let every man be true, or let God be true, but every man a liar. Uh, Peter and John, when they stood before the religious leaders there and they were being grilled in Acts chapter 4, they responded and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. And then Jesus, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. It's not just missionaries in Vietnam and Cambodia and China and Brazil and Cuba and wherever else we want to fill in. It's not just missionaries in the Christian life that are required by God to make stands for God in a culture at whatever the cost. Every single Christian is called to that kind of commitment to God and to His Word. Every single one of us is. As Christians, the Bible says we're called to be the salt and light in our world. Jesus said we're the salt of the world. He said we're the light of the world. Those are preserving influences. Those are things that arrest corruption. Those are things that halt the advance of, of darkness. And we're to use every lawful means available to us to be an influence for God in this world, including the right to vote. And in this election, we need to vote, and we need to vote yes on Proposition 8. Because if it doesn't pass, there's a strong likelihood that homosexual marriage will become the permanent law of the land in California. And the impact will be very far-reaching, between far beyond the sex of the two people that are standing in front of some person and getting married. It means that marriage will be redefined in all public literature in the state of California and in the school books and all of this, and it will be the indoctrination of your children and grandchildren, the indoctrination of the next generation. Well, let me close with this. Well, if homosexual marriage is not God's answer for the homosexual, then what is his word uh, to them? to you. Salvation. Being born again. Repenting of your sin. Coming to a place in your life where you just look and you say, God, I confess that I am a sinner. I've sinned against you in my life and through my life. And I believe that you're so holy and so pure that my, my sin is, deserves the judgment that you've described in the Scriptures. But I also believe that you love me so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to forgive me of my sins. And I believe he was buried and he rose again on the third day and I'm willing to turn away from my own sin and turn to you and give you my life for you to use for the rest of this life and all the life to come for your glory. 
And when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and salvation, the greatest miracle in the whole world occurs, and that is God's Holy Spirit comes into that person's life, and they're born again by the Holy Spirit. And they begin a relationship with God by that Holy Spirit. God Almighty has come into their life. And I think that sometimes homosexuals think that, well, you know, I tried that. I, I you know... Uh, tried to be a Christian, and, you know, I still had this, these, the pull of homosexuality, the pull of that sin in my life. That may not ever go away. Every single one of us who comes to put our faith in Christ, sometimes when we, when we come to know the Lord, the Lord will take one, two, three things away that may be sinful uh, temptations that may never bother us the rest of our Christian life unless we feed it. But he leaves one, two, three things that we have to reckon dead every day in our lives. We have to resist in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Everybody has a pull towards sin, even as a Christian. But the Holy Spirit comes into our lives to give us a power to live a holy life that is greater than the pull of sin. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's like a jet taking off from a, uh, an airport. The law of gravity is still in effect. The pull down is still in effect. But there's a greater law on that jet to resist the pull of gravity. And in the same way, God's Holy Spirit comes into our lives and there can continue to be the, uh, even a strong pull towards uh, sin. And yet there is a greater power in our lives for us to resist that pull. And everyone has to do that. I, th I think that sometimes homosexuals feel like they're, they, they, can, it's, they have to be careful not to enter into self-pity or get into some kind of a persecution complex on this and, and think, you know, God's, only, God's asking things of us that he doesn't ask of anyone else. Now, he's asking the same thing of you that he asks of everyone else. He, God isn't asking you to do anything differently with your sexuality that he doesn't demand millions of unmarried heterosexual men and women to do, and that is to abstain from sexual sin. And their sex drive is just as strong as a homosexual sex drive. Someone has said, it takes a passion to conquer a passion. It takes a passion for God to conquer a passion for sin. And the beautiful thing is, is that God supplies by his Holy Spirit that passion. And he will to anyone. The Lord loves everybody, wants to save everybody, but I have to be willing to give up my sin. I close with this one final thought. You look at the great experiment called American Culture and Society. The redefining of right and wrong and taking it away from its biblical basis and all this kind of stuff. All it does just creates casualties in all directions. All of life is a confirmation of the truthfulness of the Word of God. All you have to do is watch when it's obeyed, that's its own witness. Watch where it is disobeyed, that is its own witness to the truthfulness of the Word of God. Years ago, some years ago, they had a, the latest statistic that I had ever been able to get a hold of 
related to uh, the life expectancy of a homosexual male in the United States of America. You know the life expectancy of a homosexual male in the United States of America is today? 30, uh, 40 years old. The life expectancy of an average male is about 76 to 78, so it's probably 74 to 76, right in there. You have a lifestyle that is on average carving three to four decades off of every one of these lives. And somebody says, well, it's, that's AIDS. It's just because of AIDS. No, homosexuals that die with AIDS, their life expectancy is 38. 40 is if you don't have AIDS. It is a disease-ridden life. It is not the way the body is to be used. The lifestyle is very often characterized by violence. It's characterized by all kinds of mental problems. It's, it's no way to live. And people say, well, if they would just make it right for me by the laws of the land, then we wouldn't have these mental problems. You, you will because you're fighting how all of that's been created. God is the obstacle. His creation is the obstacle. It's not the fellow man. Centers for Disease Control, Atlanta, Georgia, United States of America, just got busted a few months ago for hiding the life expectancy rates of homosexual males in the United States of America because of their agenda and because of the news is so dismal. I'm just a preacher on a Sunday morning in one church in the United States of America. And you got the world telling their whole thing and trying to say this is right and that's wrong and this whole deal. And you got God saying what he's saying. But look at the evidence all around you. Physical, mental, emotional. And you tell me Who's leveling with you and telling you the truth? Who really cares about you and is looking out for you? And it's the God of this Bible alone. He's the one you're looking for. It'll be easy, but it's where life is found. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we just commend this time in your word to the continued ministry of your Holy Spirit uh, in our lives and through our lives. We pray, Lord, for this upcoming election and uh, ballot measure having to do here with Prop 8, and we pray that it will pass in the state of California. We pray also, Lord, I believe it's Prop uh, Prop 4, which requires parental consent for a child to, uh, in order to have an abortion. It's not ideal, but it's a step in the right direction. We pray for favor on that very moral and very spiritual proposition too, Lord. We look to you, Lord, to just show yourself strong on our behalf as we take these steps to be obedient to you, to be salt and light in this culture, and we ask it in Jesus' name. If you stand here and you